Welcome to another edition of Rail Group On Air, a joint podcast of Railway Age, Railway Track and Structures, and International Railway Journal. This is Railway Age Editor-in-Chief William C. Vantuono. We're going to take a break from the coronavirus pandemic and its impact on the rail industry and focus on growth opportunities in freight rail. Among the most promising of these are P3s, public-private partnerships with state, local, and even federal entities to finance and build facilities like intermodal and transloading terminals. My guests are Michael Sussman, Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of Philadelphia-based Strategic Rail Finance, and John Elliott, Strategic Rail Finance President. Mike and John, uh, welcome to Rail Group On Air, our podcast series. A pleasure to have you. Before we get started, uh, Mike, why don't you tell us something about strategic rail finance and uh, what, what you do? Sure. Strategic Rail Finance is a company that I'm proud to say we founded uh, 25 years ago to focus on supporting rail related companies, whether it's railroads, transloaders, shippers, one, accessing all the capital they need, but then also just making sure that the projects that are conceived are smart and uh, well-developed. So we're pretty full service in that we just focus on the North American freight railroad and logistics industry. And uh, we're now... uh, very active in advising port authorities and economic development authorities and states around the United States, including 12 port authorities uh, from uh, small river ports to Port of Long Beach in L.A. and Port of Oakland. Uh, Mike, so you've been doing this for, for 25 years. What does, tell us a little bit about your, uh, your background prior to forming uh, Strategic Rail Finance. Sure. You know, on the one hand, my former background is, can sound unrelated, but the, there are interesting ways that there is a relationship. I founded a company that became the largest manufacturer and installer of refrigeration for flower shops in the United States. And the flower shop industry, much like the railroad industry, is a networked industry in that at the national level, the flower shops are connected by their wire services, which allows us to call up one flower shop in our neighborhood and have them through their Teleflower or FTD membership service have flowers delivered to our aunt you know, across the country. And so in terms of marketing and relating to a national marketplace, the flower shop industry is much like the railroad industry in that because railroads are linked and connected, they communicating with the industry is very similar. They have, like yourself with Railway Age, and there are national magazines, and there's national conferences. And so I was able to step into the railroad industry and understand how to establish an identity that we could uh, take across the country. John, you've been president of uh, SRS uh, since uh, January 1st. Uh, Just tell us uh, quickly about your background. Bill, my background uh, started as a design engineer and project manager for two uh, large regional engineering firms based in Michigan and Pennsylvania. 
And after a decade there, I spent uh, a decade in public sector leadership where I was the uh, executive director of one of the largest redevelopment authorities in Pennsylvania and then uh, head of a large public finance agency. Um, then I did some work uh, in financing uh, infrastructure and then about four years ago came to um, work with Michael and um, really um, stepped into leadership role here um, in the last two years, uh, becoming a partner and now president of Strategic Rail Finance, and, and here I lead the Public Finance and Ports Group, um, along with uh, developing other business uh, projects, mergers, acquisitions, uh, line leases, and other things with Strategic Rail. So your primary thrust, as I understand it, is on public-private partnerships, being that you work with port authorities and, and railroads. Uh, that uh, seems to be where there is the most potential for growth. I would agree with that, Bill. Uh, the, the number of public agencies recognizing the importance and value of rail investments to their community, to their local economies, is bringing new attention to rail investment by port authorities, by industrial development agencies, by state and federal agencies. So the opportunity to attract public investment and public support for rail projects is greater than ever, in our opinion. In my background, Bill, I've been able to close about 120 public finance transactions, and those have covered a wide range of different funding mechanisms from tax credits to grants to conduit financings through different state agencies, uh, loan programs, taxable and tax-exempt bonds. There are so many different financing mechanisms available to public agencies, um, so many different avenues to connect them to rail and industrial freight projects. The opportunities are many and varied. Uh, tremendous opportunity for the rail industry here. Mike, let me ask you uh, as far as the railroad's uh, aggressiveness on business development in projects like this. Overall, how would you rate our industry on such projects? It all depends on the size of the project and the, the size of the freight move. When a shipper or a local economic development entity is bringing forward a project of real scale and size, the railroads are very interested. Of course, when you're talking about a short line or a regional railroad, they tend to be able to bring attention to not only the larger projects, but down to the medium and small projects. So it's important to match the size of the project to the right size rail carrier. And the class ones, they have high limits on the size of the project that they'll devote the attention to. In, uh, in some of these projects that you've worked on, has, has there been a uh, uh, collaboration with, uh, with a, short, a short line of regional railroad and a class one in addition to the, the public entity? Bill, I'd be glad to answer that. But let me also add a little bit of commentary to what Michael just answered about how the rail industry has responded to public-private opportunity. In my opinion, the, the railroad industry has been very slow to 
pick up on this opportunity, and part of it is just the structure of the railroad industry. The public-private partnerships and infrastructure started around airports. They started with transit agencies. They started with uh, public utilities like water and sewer systems, power companies, where there was a, already a natural interface between the public ownership of an asset and the utilization of that asset. So airports are developed by public entities, and then the airlines will take up residency, make investments, um, and make service commitments. Uh, ports, where you have a public agency, a state agency or a county agency that owns the land, has invested in the docks and wharves, has invested in cranes or dredging, and then you have private investment in terminals to utilize those assets for the public good. Because the railroads are privately owned, apart from transit, but because freight railroads are privately owned, um, there's been a certain self-reliance that um, has, I think, meant that the railroad industry has been slower to realize the benefit and the opportunities that can come through these public-private project development partnerships and financing structures. So the, the opportunities that we're seeing now are, are often linked to ports where the structures of public and private partnerships are are well known and uh, understood, but there's there's very few examples of of broad-based railroad industry collaboration with you know state agencies or development agencies to develop um, you know rail freight, and that's just because of the history and because of the structure. And so many of the things that we have the opportunity to work on, um, while they may feel very innovative in the rail industry. There's great parallels and, and prototypes that we can find in the port and airport industry, um, in uh, the public utility sector. So uh, there's some great opportunities here, Bill, and, and you don't have to reinvent the wheel. It's uh, something that we can uh, take some uh, lessons learned and some best practices from other industries and apply them here. So what do you, uh, and this is a question for both of you, uh, what do you attribute this, if you want to call it, resistance to such projects? Maybe not a resistance, but a reluctance to engage in, uh, in P3s. One of the things that I've observed has happened over the history of the railroad industry is that we've lost the connection between the financial creativity that, for instance, the 19th century railroad leadership had, where, they, where rail development was so much about financial innovations. And over time, as the network got built out and the, the industry grew, I think the focus shifted to operations capabilities, which the railroad is terrific at. But at the management level, right down to the short lines, the attention on access to capital has uh, shrunken down to you know, typical bank relations and uh, perhaps some investor relations. But when you're a railroad, because there's so many public benefits, 
to the growth of railroads and rail-related projects, there's a wide range of public sector funding support that's available. So in any state that we work in, there's, of course, programs that may be available from the Department of Transportation, but there's also programs available from the Department of Agriculture and Department of Commerce and the business development and the economic development sides of the of government. And we've been successful at communicating the value of rail-related projects to an area or a state and attracting funding solutions from a wide range of projects and programs. And uh, when you combine the public sector support with available private sector support, you can create lots of synergies that advance the impact of support from all sides. You make a great point there, Michael. And one of the insights that's really important that you bring to a public-private partnership, whether it's a regional or meta-regional collaboration, or it's an organizational partnership, or it's a, a deal-based um, partnership, one of the most important things to understand is what is it that the public agency is seeking to accomplish. And we're all very familiar with you know, ROI, return on investment, and for folks that are traditionally focused in the private industry, return on investment means some percentage of return on their dollar. And for public agencies and public organizations, they often have a programmatic return on their investment. And so that programmatic return is a lot more than just making money on their investment. They're seeking to do some public good with that. So that can be reduction of pollution or reduction of of uh, other environmental impact. It could be increasing international trade and export. It could be um, the creation of jobs, or it could be the reduction of congestion and wear and tear on public highways. It could be any number of public benefits that the public agency is seeking to create, and that is how Strategic Rail Finance has successfully connected programs from the Economic Development Administration and the U.S. Department of Agriculture and so many other um, unlikely suspects with rail projects. And railroads should have that public sensibility as common carriers. Um, in that sense, railroads are a public utility, and in that way they deliver so many public goods that it's just a new way of thinking for folks in business development or project development in the railroad industry to start understanding the many layers of public benefit that come out of their projects. And once you start to do that, a whole range of partnerships and collaborations become possible. Sadly, my observation has been that most railroads, you know, take any public engagement or public relation and assume that it goes into you know, the vice president of external relations office, and it doesn't necessarily go into business development, perhaps industrial development, but certainly not marketing and certainly not um, finance. And so uh, occasionally you see the railroads touching the RIF program or the, you know, the various state rail programs, but there's so many opportunities. Uh, it's 
they're they're varied and they're very considerable. So um, it is a it is a little bit of a break from history, um, a recent history for sure, to look to the public sector for uh, opportunities to grow and improve the rail network. What are some of the uh, funding streams uh, that are outside of the uh, rail programs or DOT programs that uh, present opportunities for, for projects for investment. If I could, Bill, recast that question just a little bit. Sure. What types of organizations can become active partners to railroads looking to grow their business and grow, um, grow rail traffic and improve uh, their own bottom line? And so I would look at other agencies or other organizations whose missions align with that of the railroad. So let's start with industrial development corporations, industrial development authorities. These types of organizations exist all around the country, often at the county level, sometimes at the city level, sometimes at the uh, regional level. And these organizations have a job very much like the real estate department um, of the railroads. The railroads own tremendous amounts of real estate. They inventory their property, and the railroads will try to sell or lease their property to rail users. Well, in these hundreds of industrial development authorities, city industrial development authorities and redevelopment authorities, the railroads have a natural partner. These are organizations that are active in cleaning up environmentally contaminated sites. They're active in developing industrial infrastructure like power, water, sewer, roadways, all of the infrastructure wrap that needs to go around a successful industrial site. So when you know, we were working on a project in Ohio, for example, where we were looking for about 20 acres of industrially zoned rail surf property, and we looked at all of the inventories of all the railroads and made a list of all the properties that met our criteria. We did the same thing with all of the port authorities in the state of Ohio, all the industrial development authorities, and the inventory of lists, uh, inventory of properties by the state economic development agency, and added to that an inventory of properties that were publicly listed through um, by realtors. When we made that list, Bill, we found about 200 sites in the state of Ohio that met that criteria there was less than 4% overlap on that list, meaning that the ports did not know what the railroads had, the railroads did not know what the industrial development agencies had, and none of them knew what the realtors had. There was almost perfect misalignment of their information. And yet these industrial development agencies and these port authorities are getting environmental clearances, doing infrastructure projects all around them, and they're all rail served how is it that someone who's looking for property to locate a rail user on the rail line is going to know what's possible? So you think about that. These railroads, and there are dozens of them in the state of Ohio, and it's true all across the country, these railroads don't necessarily have a linkage to industrial development agencies and port authorities to co-market their property. So we just see those kinds of organizational alignments um, with the industrial development authorities. The next obvious category, Bill, are your port authorities. These port authorities all around the country are making investments. They're putting um, 
business development professionals in the field locally and even internationally to develop business through their port. And you know that so much freight on the North American rail network originates from or is destined to a port. These ports are ready to make investments, and many of them are very well capitalized. You're not even talking about a finance program at this point. You're talking about the revenues of the port and the port making investments in rail infrastructure the same way they've traditionally made investments in docks and wharves and and dredging and cranes. And they're willing to do that when it draws freight through the port and they're making their return on investment in dockage and wharfage fees and in land leases and other revenue streams. So in many ways, that's fresh opportunity for the railroads to develop terminals, yards, in collaboration with a port authority whose interests are almost perfectly aligned with the railroads. The railroads are their best means for inland reach. And the better that collaboration and the more aligned they can be on business development opportunities, the richer those opportunities are for both. So while there are so many different public programs you can tap for mitigating environmental impact or job creation or export promotion, just aligning with the right kinds of organizations that are already doing work that so neatly complements the railroad's objectives, tremendous opportunities there, Bill. What needs to be done to bring these different entities uh, in, into alignment where there, where there's a, is there a way to do a, to create a common database of, of available properties? Uh, Cause the, the disconnect, uh, uh, that that's that number is almost mind-boggling. There's only four percent, as as you said. It's a lot of missed opportunities, I would think. One of the approaches that we've taken lately, after studying the sort of static nature of traditional public sector transportation plans and state rail plans, and the lack of commercial relevance to these plans, we were asked by the state of Nevada to recommend an approach for their state rail plan, and they liked it so much that they engaged us to lead a whole state rail-based economic development strategy. And it's interesting to find that at a whole state level, as large as a state is, you can identify all of the related public sector entities at the state level and the county level regional level, whether it's economic development, county management, town management, the various agencies at a state level, you can identify all of them, catalog all of them, and initiate a whole state collaboration where all the parties are able to think about and contribute into the campaign, into the effort, what their perspectives are and what support they're able to bring to rail development. So in that way, folks can get a window into an an entire region or an entire state's rail network, its shippers, its sidings, the properties, the topographical characteristics of the state that are conducive to additional rail lines and additional rail served property. And there's no reason why we can't do that for each state in the country. It's fortunate that rail is a networked industry, so it's all a system, it's all connected, and the degree to which we can 
shine a light on all elements of that network, one of the great outcomes is that it it brings much-needed economic development support to rural America, which is you know often left out of uh, economic development efforts. But rail really can provide that engine of growth for economic development, and uh, so in that way, we have been able to you know address this typical disconnect that exists between railroads coming from the private sector and government when, in fact, so many folks in government are really anxious to support the railroad industry. It's unusual in that way in that there's so many businesses and industries that aren't an inherent contribution to the community. But with railroads, there's an entire network of support from the federal government, state government. Every state has a Department of Transportation and Almost every state has a rail office, so it's it's a real wonderful opportunity for the rail industry to step into proactive collaboration with government. And on the and on the ground level, Bill, I would say that the business development and industrial development offices of the railroads and the class ones in particular could really utilize this network of of regional industrial development or county level industrial development offices um, and really equip those development professionals with the right understanding and the right method to engage the railroads. We know that the restructuring of the railroads under the flag of PSR has in many cases dramatically cut the business development and industrial development staffs of the various railroads. They're, they're shorthanded. Um, you often have one person or two people covering multiple states. Uh, there's no way for them to know what ground level opportunities exist with this scrapyard or with that warehouse or this new industrial park that's being developed. And so we think that the whole network of of industrial development professionals who know their neighborhoods, who know their cities and counties because it's their home, because they live there, because that's their job to know. Those, in, those same professionals also know all of, this, all of the different finance tools, whether they're tax credits or tax abatements or tax increment finance, and all of these other very clever tools that they've developed for financing and incentivizing development. They know all of that, and they need to be connected with the industrial development departments of the railroads, which is a tremendous opportunity for the railroads then to leverage their now very lean and um, their very lean staff and their um, their relatively lean real estate departments. So, I think that there's, you know, as Michael was saying, the broader opportunity to organize around like statewide strategy or regional strategy, and then also that partnership on the local level with the folks that know the local opportunities, the local business landscape. Um, tremendous opportunity there to supplement uh, the industrial development efforts of the railroads themselves. In a way, the uh, PSR movement and the, the uh, pressures that, that it's put on, on the big carriers uh, uh, to be efficient, lower operating ratio, uh, improve their returns, whatever the objectives might be, 
and that sort of had a uh, uh, it, which I wouldn't maybe say it's counter business growth, but it it doesn't seem to have uh, helped in terms of uh, in terms of manpower. PSR has done a great job at reducing cost and increasing efficiency. It has done nothing to grow volume or to increase the number or capability of customers. And so you've created tremendous efficiency, you've created capacity in that way. Um, How do you fill it? How do you use it? And so PSR is probably necessary in many of its forms and applications just because it's creating a schedule that can now be applied to new growth opportunities and those new growth opportunities are going to have to be developed collaboratively. Um, sure, some business is going to fall into the railroad's lap because it just must. Um, if, if you're developing a new container terminal, naturally the railroads are going to tie to that. But how is it that a new business in metal processing or how is it that some expansion in cold warehousing gets tied into the network? That requires work and that requires attention to detail that is not possible without personal attention. And where is that personal attention going to come from? And that's a question that PSR has not answered. And so the question of growth is the next question for the railroad industry. I think they they figured out how to create efficiency. Now the question is how to match growth with efficiency. That's the next thing for railroads. Do you, th- do you think that we will see uh, a shift to that uh, once once the uh, efficiency objectives and cost objectives have been have been reached and and uh, sort of like a positive train control you know that, that will be implemented by statute by the end of the year and now railroads are looking at well we have this we'll have the system in place we've met the mandate. It's we, we've done the safety overlay, but now we have all this extra bandwidth. Uh, what can we do with that? So that's called PTC 2.0. What other technologies can we uh, can we implement that can use the PTC platform? Do you think we're looking at the same thing with PSR? Maybe something, well, PSR 2.0, for example. Is there a mindset for that? Yes. I hope so. I hope so, Bill. And here's... Here's the mathematical impossibility of of this situation. You can only create so much profit by creating efficiency. It's an asymptotic type of mathematical relationship. You're going to approach some point where it is just impossible to squeeze more profit out of the same car count. At that point, you have to grow in order to create returns. So we have to go through this. It's necessary to create efficiency. Congratulations to those that are doing it, but there comes a point when you have to add cars. And when you start adding cars, there's all kinds of opportunities um, you know, to do that. The question is how to do it best, and there's going to be some technological applications uh, in that. But I don't know that technology can ever replace um, collaborative human partnerships and organizational partnerships, and that's what uh, – you know, public-private partnerships are about. BNSF has a little bit different uh, 
capital structure behind it than the other publicly traded railroads. Uh, and because of that, they have a longer-term perspective, perhaps, uh, because they have a smaller group to uh, satisfy than a whole crowd of uh, Wall Street investors. Uh, but here's, here's the question as it relates to the public-private partnerships, which is our question for today, and that is it, it comes to capital structure and return requirements and the patience for returns, and all of those are very relevant to public-private partnerships. Public entities aren't living for the next quarter or the next annual report. Um, you know, many of the port authorities have been around for a century or more. Many of these industrial development agencies have been here for decades, and cities have certainly been here for decades and centuries. And so they have a perspective on time and return on investment that is very suitable to the life expectancy of rail investments. When you put a railroad track down, it can be there for decades or centuries. And so perspective on time is very important. But let's ask a question um, about how the railroads are using their surplus capital. And when you pick up the annual reports of Union Pacific or CSX or Norfolk Southern, any of them, you're going to quickly run across the references to share buybacks. And this is an important question of what is the return or the benefit to the company, the financial benefit to the company of buying back shares versus making investment for growth. And sadly, the, the benefit of, of buying back shares is so great and the risk is so low in making that investment that the railroads simply are not structured to make the investments for growth that are required. Now, there's a lot of structural um, reasons behind that, but I think this gets to the point and the value of private-public partnerships is that the return expectations of the public sector are different. The timing of those expectations is different. Even the composition of those return on investment are different, as we talked about, programmatic returns versus pure financial returns. So the, the importance of partnering intelligently with the public sector is hard to overstate when the railroads are almost obligated to take their surplus capital and hand back to shareholders in the form of share buybacks. Open up a Union Pacific or any of the, the Class 1 annual reports and look at the ratio between investment and new capacity. I'm not talking about maintenance investment. I'm talking about investment and new capacity and compare that to the volume that they're spending on share buybacks. And you will almost inevitably find a 5 to 1 to 10 to 1 ratio between share buybacks versus investment and new capacity. And so we can see where the money is going innovative capital structures and doing the right thing in public partnership and getting the right capital structures around growth projects for the railroad industry, it's a matter of survival for the railroads long term. When you interact with the public sector as much as we do, you appreciate that they, you know, our, our public sector stewards often do have that longer range perspective that perhaps uh, you're right, we're absolutely missing in, in much of the business community. And uh, understanding that and understanding that uh, rail projects are very much welcomed and appreciated by public sector leaders and planners. And uh, I would say 
It's a, as much a, a matter of just picking up a phone, uh, having conversations with people in government, having meetings, getting together, and uh, as we always find, there's tremendous support for local rail development across the board in the public sector. Well, that's encouraging, and uh, I guess the, the railroads have to uh, get on board, uh, to, for lack of a better term. There certainly are there certainly are uh, rail leaders that do understand that and do grasp it. And you know, how often do we hear of a short line operator that has established a terrific relationship with their town or county or state? And uh, it's just time to scale that up across the board and certainly scale it up at the whole industry level so that the government relations leadership really steps into seeing government as a partner for building projects and the system rather than as a group of folks that you know need to be defended against or dealt with or but there's so much of a return from that investment given that the railroad industry really can't progress without having that collaborative productive relationship with not only government but communities certainly community leaders and there's a great return on investment available from that investment in manpower staffing and uh, attention to relating productively with government this is the direction that our industry uh, must take if it is to to grow and thrive that's right Bill. it's certainly how the industry was built when we think back to how the early rail lines were given their first charters and their first financial support and their stock ownership. It came from an intimate connection with the community and its government leaders. There's nothing different about that. The opportunity is just as ripe now. All right. Well, thank you both very much for uh, for joining us. Uh, stay well, stay healthy, stay safe, and uh, thanks so much for uh, participating. Mike and John.